This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. Hello, everyone. Today's interview is with Nadav Hollander from Dharma Protocol, which is a lending platform, decentralized lending platform built on the ZeroX project. And uh, it's funny because today is the day when Bitcoin hit $10,000 for the first time. And that's exciting. Um, but it's also that is a result of and kind of a leading indicator of some of these awesome new projects that are coming out like um, Dharma Protocol. So uh, for me, the big takeaways from this interview were first, the Xerox project stack is fascinating, and this is actually part of uh, this the first interview in a series of interviews that I'm doing on the Xerox project stack. Um, and this is on the stack side. There are other Ethereum stacks that are coming out. Um, there's this. There's one um, on the kind of governance side with where you have Ethereum as the underlying layer, Aragon on top for governance, District OX on top of that for decentralized marketplaces, and then on top of that, different kinds of marketplaces like something like Decentraland, which is selling um, VR. Uh, space essentially so that's like another example of a stack and and we have this other stack that's being built now um the decentralized finance stack that's being built with the zero x project and so you know you have uh, something like the xerox project which allows for trustless exchange and liquidity through atomic swaps that just means it's a protocol to like swap any asset for any other asset essentially and the dharma protocol uses um, xerox for atomic swaps to essentially create this lending protocol that then other people can build on top of later um so this is a fascinating new stack that's coming out and i do want to push back maybe a bit against the word stack here though um because in in stack leads to like the fat protocol thesis which says that you know the protocols of this new blockchain internet will accrue so much value and i'm actually i'll share an interview with jake brookman from coin fund um about fat protocols and whether they should be taken as a monolith good thing um but because i because i think that the stack version of things kind of shows a version of reality where you have uh, things at the top and things at the bottom and, and and it's kind of this like linear progression but really it's just a bunch of interoperable apis um and so yeah i think i think that there's a little bit of pushback there but dharma protocol is a great example of it because it it uses the zero x protocol for one part of its mechanism for one part of its um of its protocol and then uh, it clearly uses ETH below that, Ethereum, and then, but it's ready, it's, and above it, it's essentially a decentralized protocol that allows for any kinds of new applications to be built on top of it. Um, so it is kind of an example of this new kind of protocol stack where Dharma could be um, a new kind of fat protocol that does gain a lot of um, transaction volume through it, but it's not necessarily at the bottom of the stack. So. That's one side of things is the the Xerox project stack. And then the other thing that I'm thinking about here is I've been doing these interviews on software systems, um, but really these software systems are things that really just map the real world. Um, and so this example is like, I'm do, doing a lot more like economic and financial systems, which I know very little about. Um, and so it's fascinating to see and kind of to port the current financial world into software kind of by breaking it down bucketing it or what Ndolf calls atomizing these kind of financial systems into code um, and then creating a protocol around it but what that means is that it can be kind of tough to dive into these things because the financial world is confusing and it's difficult so i like to think of this as kind of a white paper deep dive 
um, where we're kind of giving an overview of, of the white paper and, and kind of diving into how it works. And the thing to know before, you know, listening to Nadav and I go into it is I want to give a quick high-level overview of what um, Dharma Protocol is. It's a lending protocol, right? So people, and there are kind of, you can imagine two roles in that process. There are people who want money, who are the borrowers, who are the debtors, um, give me money, give me money. And then the, on the other side, you have people who have money, who are looking to lend it out, um, who are the lenders, who are the uh, creditors. And you can imagine it's a simple protocol like that, where you just have borrowers on one side and lenders on the other side. But Dharma uses this concept called keepers, um, which is this concept by Ryan Sir from Polychain Capital, which are essentially people that help a protocol run smoothly. Because you can imagine with that just that two, two-way peer-to-peer protocol that you might get a little bit of weird things where, okay, who's a good borrower, who's a good lender, blah, blah. So what this allows for, and it's also a map from the real world, is it allows for kind of two new um, of these keepers to exist. One of them on the um, on the borrower side is called an underwriter, and those people are the ones that kind of source the debt and determine the rules. So you got a bunch of people that want to borrow money, and an underwriter, someone who says, okay, you got all these people who want to borrow money, okay, these people are good, here's the rules of the debt, blah, blah, blah. They kind of set the rules of the engagement with the borrower. On the other side, you have these relayers, who I like to think of as kind of aggregation or curation machines, and they're kind of facing the people who are actually doing the lending, and they're saying, hey, person who wants to do some lending, I got some awesome debt for you. It's been, here's the borrower for it, here's the underwriter for it. They kind of aggregate and curate which kinds of um, which kinds of underwriters and which kind of debt they want to show to their lenders, and then they produce it to them. So that's kind of a high-level overview of the protocol, and, and, and Adav and I will kind of dive into it more deeply as well. Um, the third, so so that's that's the the interesting part with this podcast interview, which is not necessarily similar to my other ones, is that it's really kind of a white paper overview um, this way to think about it. Um, the third thing though, that we talk about here is talk about what it's like for Dharma to go through Y Combinator as a blockchain company um, and why they're not doing this token sale, uh, which I think is a, is pretty awesome. And they're essentially allowing for these like you know, tokenized uh, systems that are trying out things with governance and medium exchange. Those experiments are happening and they might you know, strap into them later. Um, but right now they're doing this thing that I actually love, what I call like a reverse leap of faith, um, where they're essentially saying, hey, we're going to create this awesome utility for the world, which is this new lending protocol. And at the beginning, though, we don't have a business model, you know, and, and, um, and Nadav says that. He says, we don't have a business model right now and we're not going to be rent seeking. There are going to be no fees. But the leap of faith that he's making, which I think is a very reasonable one, is, hey, if we give the world so much value by making this new lending protocol, then later on, we as a company can make money, or the world will give us value in return, or will give us opportunity later. So it's kind of, instead of asking for money up front and doing the rent seeking, it's kind of flipping that equation and allowing the world to say, hey, we've you've provided us with so much value, we're gonna, um, that's gonna loop back around. So it's kind of like this karmic uh, version of reality. Okay, so that's kind of a long overview but I think it's um, a good framing for us to kind of dive in both to this interview today with Nadav, but also into these interviews in general with the Xerox Project stack um, and with these financial kind of systems in general. And with that, thanks and enjoy the interview. 
Hello, fabulous listener. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. And in this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to creating a better future. So we kind of have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're going to focus on Series C software systems, where we focus on crypto economics, AI alignment, things like that. And we're asking the question, what software systems are built in code? And I'm very happy to introduce Nadav Hollander today, um, who's the co-founder of Dharma Protocol, a way to administer debt agreements as tradable cryptographic tokens. Nadav, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you so much, Reese. It's good to be here. Yeah, excited to dive in. And and what I love about um, kind of the blockchain and crypto space is not only we're essentially creating the financial system in software systems. So it's this great kind of combination of software systems and like understanding how money works. <laughs> so right, right. And, and it's good for me because I'm kind of completely ignorant of the financial system. So could you kind of give me a high level overview of the Dharma protocol before we kind of dive in deeper? Sure. Yeah. So I guess like it's it's probably easiest to explain Dharma by kind of first of all explaining the impetus for it and, and kind of the reason why um, I think it's valuable to build this. Um, and, and basically that is that like in in the world of blockchains, like we have this like massive growing class of tokens, um, which all kind of have equity like characteristics to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by equity like is, is that they don't necessarily give you governance rights per se or dividends or any of the things that traditionally come with equity. Um, but they do have equity like risk profiles where if you invest in a ICO, you're, you're probably judging the company that is associated with that ICO in the same way that you would judge like Tesla with respect to their their Tesla stock or something like that. Yeah. So, so these tokens have equity-like properties to them. Um, but what kind of led me to start thinking about this problem is that if you look at the, the, the real-world financial system, so to speak, equity is a much, much smaller asset class than the debt. Um, whereas equity represents something like $73 trillion of global value, um, debts something like 213 trillion, something around those lines. Mm. Um, and so if you buy this notion that tokens are useful for representing value for X, Y, Z different reasons, and we can, we can dive into those more deeply if we want to actually like break down the first principles here. But, um, if you buy the idea that tokens are really good at kind of frictionlessly expressing value in a way that can easily be transported across borders, programmed, et cetera. Um, then it's kind of a natural next step to start porting the world of loans, bonds, um, and just debt instruments in general uh, into cryptographic tokens. Um, And so essentially what Dharma is, is we're trying to create um, the standard universal mechanism by which one actually issues a debt agreement as a cryptographic token, how one underwrites that, that debt token, so actually how one is able to determine what the likelihood is that that debt will be repaid, uh, and then finally, um, a mechanism for actually administering that debt. So that means actually making repayments, um, being able to track those repayments, etc. Um, and we're trying to do that in the most generic way possible so that anything from a consumer loan to um, a margin lending system to a sovereign bond can be represented by tokens. 
Got it. Cool. Yeah. So essentially, money breaks into two big things, or rather, the tokenization of money breaks into two big things: equity and debt. Uh, equity's been done in a big way already, and debt hasn't. And so you're trying to address the the debt uh, profile within crypto, and specifically to make a very kind of abstracted protocol that allows any kind of debt in issuance uh, to exist in in crypto. Is that all right? That that's correct. Yes. Cool. Um, so I guess before we dive into the protocol itself, are there other things? So there's equity, and then there's debt. Is there any other big bucket that we're missing here, where there's like, oh, we should make a protocol for that too? Um, yes, absolutely. Like the the far and beyond biggest asset class in the world is is derivatives. Yeah. Um, which is just like a a very broad category. Um, of of assets that are just constructed like it, derivatives is like honestly the best word to describe it even though it's like kind of like a, a word that has no meaning because it's such a broad category it's pretty much just any sort of asset that is constructed from other constituent assets under some sort of logic um, and that asset class is so incredibly large that we literally don't even entirely know exactly how big it is um, yeah. so there's actually some interesting protocols that are working on that right now uh, particularly uh, a friend of mine Antonio is working on DYDX which I think is a really interesting protocol yep. for creating options and short sales um, so anyhow um, we can dive a little bit deeper into that if you'd like. But but that I just wanted to know if there were any other bigger buckets. And like you said, there's a, a huge one, which is derivatives, but you're focused on debt here. Um, so right, right. thinking about the Dharma Protocol then, so you have uh, – you're issuing debt. Could you kind of break down for me how um, – and, and especially from like an actor perspective, you have someone who's issuing the debt, someone who's um, getting the debt, um, someone who kind of does, I guess, the underwriting. So kind of could you break down the, the system here? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess like the uh, the way I define it in the white paper is that there's kind of two classes of actors um, that are involved in maintaining the protocol. Um, one class is what I would call agents, which which like is kind of like a broad term for just like anybody who's actually a consumer of the protocol. And so those those are generally just people who are either taking on some sort of debt. So like a borrower. Um, or somebody who is actually like capitalizing some sort of debt, so like a, a creditor or an investor. Um, and so like uh, if we we can throughout this whole conversation, we can use like lending club as a the canonical example. Even though I personally don't think it's the most interesting example, but it's it's a good it's a good way of explaining how these sorts of things would work. Um, so in the lending club example, like the person who goes to lending club to take out a loan would just be the debtor in this arrangement. And then the person that actually scrolls through loans on um, Lending Club's website and actually invests in them would be the creditor. Now, um, the second category of, of people who are kind of involved in the maintenance of the protocol um, would be what I call keepers. Um, and this is not my own term, mind you. This is, this is a term that was coined by, by Reinser from, uh, from Polychain yep. Capital. Um, and it generally refers to just like utility players that in some way provide value for compensatory fees to a network. Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of Dharma Protocol, um, that falls into two different buckets. Um, the first is is underwriters, um, which is, and, and, and I'll go more deeply into what that means in a second. Um, and then the second are relayers. Um, so the first of those categories, um, the underwriters, pretty much do exactly what it sounds like. Um, in, the, in the traditional financial system, underwriting refers to the idea of essentially like taking some sort of package of debt um, and 
attesting to the fact that you think this package of debt has a X percent chance of actually um, being repaid in uh, as according to the terms that are outlined in it. Mm. Um, and functionally speaking, that's that's pretty much what what an underwriter does in Dharma Protocol. Um, so to kind of crystallize this example, um, let's go with like uh, with that lending club sort of example. Let's just say that you Reese have some sort of novel thesis on how to say give loans to um zcash miners i do actually okay there we go (laughs) perfect my first customer yeah Um, so let's just say you have some sort of novel idea on how to how to give loans to people who need to you know build these gpu mining rigs and what have you Mm -hmm. Um, actually, I'm not even sure if, if, if Zcash is a GPU mining operation. Anyhow, whatever. <laughs> we don't need to get into the specifics there. But um, you're, you're, you need to mine something and you need, to, you need some upfront capital to actually yeah. build your, your mining rig. Um, and so what essentially your role would be in something like Dharma is that you would go ahead and set up a website that looked a lot like a lending club, looked a lot like a SoFi, looked like any other online alt lender. Um, and everything that involves your interactions with, uh, with a borrower um, throughout the life cycle of their loan would be pretty much exactly the same as it would be in the traditional financial system. Um, the only difference is, is that instead of you going out and uh, like knocking on a bunch of his investors' doors in order to actually raise the debt capital that is necessary for you to start making loans, mm-hmm. um, you would instead act as an underwriter in Dharma Protocol. And when a borrower came to your door, um, you would essentially um, cryptographically sign a statement saying, I believe borrower X has a Y percent chance of defaulting on a loan of Z, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do whatever is in my power to make sure that they actually pay back according to like XYZ fee schedule. And then you take that signed little bundle and you're going to give that off to a relayer, which I'll explain what that does in a second. But ostensibly, once that loan actually gets funded, you're going to get a fee for that. Um, And so the idea is that, at least in the underwriter bucket, um, becoming an underwriter in Dharma Protocol is basically a means of of capitalizing some sort of online lending business in in a sort of mechanism that I would argue is a lot more frictionless than actually going through like the traditional route of knocking on fixed income investors doors and so on and so forth. Got it. Um, so wait, let's, so, so let's pause for a second there to, to make sure I understand this. So yeah, you have, um, so there's a kind of a high level meta bucket of agents versus keepers. The agents are kind of the users of the protocol, AKA people who are looking for money, AKA debtors, and then people who are actively giving people money or renting out their money, whatever, creditors. Uh, And then you have the keepers who are traditionally, um, the keepers are people who have been, uh, they essentially help the the protocol function. And you can imagine the keepers in kind of the centralized version as these, uh, like the centralized intermediary, whether it's lending club or whoever. Is that right? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, in, in, I think the one thing that I would clarify is that in, in Dharma protocol, it's not necessarily, um, these underwriters will most likely usually be centralized entities. Mm -hmm. Um, we could, we could like walk through a thought experiment of what it would look like to have like a underwriter that was like, say like a decentralized network or was a, a, uh, you know, a DAO. It's not really fashionable to say DAOs anymore, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) that was a DAO or something, but it, it gets a bit more complex and it's easier to kind of think about it in terms of just uh, individual centralized entities. Um, but what Dharma is, is a protocol that governs their interactions with kind of all the other constituents in the network. Yep. Um, and uh, kind of 
atomizes the actual components of the lending process. Because mm -hmm. like usually if you think about it, like what a lending club does is that like a certain aspect of their core competency is actually originating and underwriting loans, but a large aspect of their core competency is actually like attracting investors. Um, and that usually involves not just, you know, creating a nice retail investment platform that people can kind of scroll through and like, have like a nice interface to interact with and so on and so forth. Like it actually usually involves getting something like 80% of their volume from, from institutional investors. Mm -hmm. And so there's this huge kind of like capital markets operation that most of the online lenders have to build out. Interesting. Uh, so right. could I, let me dive in on that for a second. So would someone like lending club, um, would they be an underwriter on your platform in the future? Like, would that be a, a possible future you could see? It's, it's definitely possible, right? I think it's like, it's possible versus likely. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's theoretically possible. Okay, um, I think that a lot of the current online lending companies are, are a lot more low tech than most people would realize. Um, and like, they're kind of like window dressing on the existing financial system. Yep. Um, and so I think they're less likely candidates to want to do this in the short term. But if I could outline the basic, like, like if you were to build a new lending club on some sort of niche lending market, mm. um, the pros that I would say, uh, or rather the, the advantages of building on top of Dharma would be that, A, you don't necessarily have to sort out the actual ways in which your loans get funded yourself. All you need to focus on is actually originating and servicing debt mm -hmm. and just making sure you get good borrowers and you're actually making sure that they're paying back by whatever mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second benefit is that um, when people actually invest in your loans via the relaying mechanism, which I can talk about in a second, mm -hmm. um, those investors will have a cryptographic token that represents their ownership in that debt, or rather their rights to future cash flows in that loan. Mm -hmm. um, and I would argue that's kind of the biggest deal here, because that's 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 what's powerful about, about something like Dharma Protocol, is that there's we kind of create this open universal standard for um, what a debt asset looks like as as a like a tokenized primitive, Great. Um, and we can kind of get into that in a second. But but there's a lot of interesting things when you start going down that line. Yeah, got it. So yeah, and I, and I like what you're saying about um, the atomizing of the APIs. There, I think that's just a great way to think about uh, crypto in general and the in, in blockchain protocols. Is you know, as someone like Balaji from uh, Earn.com, formerly Twenty One Co, says, you know, it's, these are all about kind of like pseudo like paid API keys. And and what you're saying is, yeah, this is just a way to kind of atomize to say, hey, these are all the little nooks and crannies of the system, and here's how they interoperate with each other. So, yeah, given that, I think that's a great metaphor. Yeah. Um, let's kind of well, you said it, so. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I was I was referring to the API keys. Oh, uh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so now let's think about. So I, I pretty much have the idea about these underwriters. They're the people who essentially are sourcing the borrowers, who are sourcing the debtors. And as you say, they're like smart contractor. They're kind of like at the atoms in their thing are, hey, there's this borrower X with Y amount doing Y amount of dollars that has a X or a Z percent chance of um, paying back their loan or whatever. So that's them. Now let's kind of go over to the other side here of the relayers um, and the other side of that core value proposition for a new, uh, new, new for someone new who'd come on this platform. So tell me a little bit more about the relayers and specifically the um, tokenized uh, debt here. Sure. Um, so, so what a relayer is, and I think really the best, um, the best analogy that I can use to, to define what a relayer is, it's kind of like a kayak for loans, um, where I'm sure, have you used kayak yep. before mm -hmm. the book of flight? Yep. 
Right. And so, so what Kayak does is that like anytime you search for a certain flight on Kayak or a certain hotel or what have you, it basically aggregates results from a bunch of different vendors um, who are selling flights, who are selling hotels, who are selling vacation packages, et cetera. Um, and essentially, um, what a relayer is, is that they kind of aggregate different su- like different debt orders that have been attested to by underwriters um, from a variety of different sources. And then they provide a sort of retail investment platform that lets people actually fill those debt orders and lets people actually invest in those different debts. Um, and the mechanism by which this happens um, is entirely based off of on-chain atomic swaps, meaning mm-hmm. that essentially um, you don't have to send your money to a relayer and have them hold it on your behalf at any point in time in order to actually invest in different in different debts. Um, so it's not like, for instance, if you were to go to a you know like LendingClub.com and you were going to try to invest in a loan there, um, you would have to like basically like bank transfer them a certain amount of money, mm-hmm. um, and then you're going to have a balance on their website. That's well and good within the world of, of of normal finance where you can reverse bank transactions if people are being fraudulent and so on and so forth. Um, but in the world of crypto, that's that's problematic, and and I can go more into why that's an issue. But that's like uh, that's kind of the the impetus for why we have or why people are trying to build decentralized exchanges. Um, and so the great thing about about the way the relaying mechanism works is that um, we've we've largely based the system uh, off of the way that zero x protocol works. Mm-hmm. For those listeners out there who are aware of who, who know how that works. Um, and in fact, we actually leverage zero X for one of the steps in the process. Um, and essentially like, um, I, as a relayer, uh, am going to list, uh, certain orders that, that, uh, underwriters have forwarded over to me. So let's just say I have like a, a, I have three different lending club, like underwriters. One is in China, one is in South America and one is, is in Europe. Um, and I am in California and I've built a, Relayer that is specifically catered to um, English-speaking investors. Yep. Um, I'm going to essentially take their the debt orders that these different underwriters have attested to. I'm going to list them on my website publicly, um, and any time that an investor wants to actually fill one of those debt orders, um, they're going to take the little bundle of data that I have posted on my website, and mm-hmm. they're going to submit it to a smart contract, um, and in one transaction. Uh, they're going to have a debt token representing their ownership of that debt, and the borrower on the other side is going to actually end up getting that principal. Um, and all of the sort of terms associated with the debt are going to be immutably encoded on chain uh, in a way that anybody in the future, uh, be they a person or a smart contract or any other automata, will be able to actually determine like these are the terms of the debt. This is how much has actually been paid back. Um, uh, this is, and all that stuff is like transparently auditable on chain. Um, so that's kind of the function of the relayer in, in gory details. Cool. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, they are, <laughs> I like the, the, the kayak for loans. They're an aggregator. They essentially, um, their input is a bunch of 
these different underwriters uh, based off of whatever their like specific theme of their site is or whatever. They get all these underwriters as inputs with their specific like um, borrower attestations or whatever, and then they you know provide them to the the creditors and they say, hey, here's the, the whole list of things, um, and you can go and and then the creditor once they actually are like, oh sweet, I want to lend this money to this person. When they click that button, that all just happens automatically through a smart contract. The money gets transferred, and the creditor gets a the money gets transferred to the debtor, aka the borrower, and then the um, the creditor gets a actual token that says, "Hey, this is that essentially links their um, their debt or the, the the debt that they just provided to an actual token." Is that right? That's correct. And I think the one mechanism that I probably haven't elaborated on. Up until now, that's that's important to understand is that um, when an underwriter makes an attestation to a certain uh, debt order and that debt order actually gets filled on the other end, mm -hmm. um, all of that is like immutably like recorded on chain in a manner where you can essentially look at a underwriter's previous performance um, and be able to empirically judge how well their perform their their predictions have kind of matched up with reality. Um, and, and what that means is that, that the market should ostensibly gravitate towards um, rewarding those sorts of underwriters that have done a very good job of, uh, of sourcing and originating and servicing um, loans in a manner that, that was in line with the predictions that they made. Yeah. Um, and conversely, um, it should punish those sorts of underwriters um, that are doing not as good of a job as that. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the core like underlying incentive mechanism that makes the system feasible. Got it. Um, so tell me a little bit more about when I hear about the relayers, uh, they're just kind of, it, they're kind of curators in a way. Um, why couldn't, you know, the creditors just go straight to the underwriters? Why couldn't they just be like, oh, um, here's a bunch of people that are underwriting things. I, as a creditor, I'm going to go to these underwriters that I trust or whatever. Why do they need to go through the relayers? Right, right. So, so theoretically, um, mind you, it's, it's, there's nothing that prevents a underwriter from being a relayer at the same time. And yep. if anything, I think that the first partners that we're going to be onboarding to the protocol, um, mind you, this is an open protocol. Anybody can build on top of it, but the ones that we're, we're in talks with right now, um, are going to be acting as both relayers and underwriters at the same time. Hmm. Um, and so that, that kind of fits into the canonical like lending club example. Um, but the, the reason why we've kind of atomized these two different concerns in the, yep. uh, in the lending process is that it's a very different, different set of skills and competencies to actually originate and underwrite debt versus being able to essentially like, uh, sell, uh, like crypto tokens to people mm -hmm. in a manner that is compliant, um, and in a manner that, uh, like it's a, it's just uh, creating a retail investment platform is like a very different side of the brain than mm -hmm. <laughs> than uh, mm -hmm. than actually issuing or rather underwriting and and uh, originating debt. Um, and so the hope is is that like um, realtors will be able to focus more of their resources uh, towards building these sort of compliant crowdfunding platforms mm -hmm. for for this actual debt. Uh, and underwriters, if you're just some some person in X country who has a really interesting idea on how to uh, originate and underwrite debt for, for Y market that God knows we haven't even thought of yet, um, then you can very easily build that online lending business without actually having to worry about um, the ways by which you're going to 
uh, fund those loans. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I like that as a yeah, they they could be the same thing, but uh, they're very different kind of profiles and concerns that each of them have. Is it is it? I kind of talked about relayers as a as like kind of curators. Um, mm-hmm. Is is that an okay frame on them, or are they more like people who find people to give them money? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think to some degree there's a little bit of a curation aspect to mm-hmm. it. Um, this this kind of gets into into a different aspect of the protocol, um, which is that there's this isn't a fully trustless system. Um, and I think uh, I really like to emphasize that a lot because um, there's, I, I don't want to be in any way underhanded about it. Like if you are investing in a debt asset that has been attested to by a certain underwriter, um, you are effectively trusting that that underwriter is not being fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Um, because while you can, you know, while you can empirically kind of judge the performance of the debts that they've attested to in the past, um, there's a lot of pretty trivial attacks that that a anonymous underwriter who is just like a faceless public key on the internet um, could execute on the protocol. Um, and I think that this is analogous kind of to like um, the fact that you would never invest into an ICO that's just like a public key on a website. Like you would always want to know what the actual company is doing, um, who the founders are. Um, you'd want to see some sort of positive signals as to their credibility. Um, and I would put underwriters into a similar bucket uh, as that, where essentially like um, you are in the same sense that an ICO or a company that is doing an ICO is facilitating some sort of crowdfunding event. Underwriters are facilitating some sort of crowdfunding event and they have to be trusted entities. Now, this whole kind of uh, this whole uh, aside that I've gone on here is, is a roundabout way of, of basically explaining that that relayers, in a sense, have somewhat of a curation aspect to them insofar as if, if a relayer is just accepting debt orders from anyone in the world who is just, you know, sending them like uh, a debt order from yeah. like some sort of faceless public key, um, then they are really exposing their investors to a high risk of fraudulent activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so good relayers should ostensibly um, do some sort of curation or some sort of sifting of of uh, the people who come into the top of the funnel. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. Um, so let's kind of transition a bit. So I think, and I mean, I think I understand the protocol relatively well in terms of those four different pieces. Um, the, my instinct, though, is that... Um, you know, we need to kind of incentivize these underwriters and these relayers in order for them to be good keepers in this mm-hmm. in this system. Um, but I know that you're not actually doing a token sale or an ICO. So could you kind of talk more about that um, and also talk a little bit about how you then incentivize these underliers, underwriters and relayers to be on your protocol? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think I'll actually do that in the reverse the reverse order. Yep. And I'll explain how why you as an underwriter or relayer would want to build some sort of company on top of Zara Protocol. Um, and the simple answer is that you do earn fees. Like you're you're you set your own fees and you earn them on a per debt basis. 
Um, and so the the incentive mechanism of the whole protocol is that essentially if you are an underwriter and you are um, sourcing and originating debts in a really consistent um, consistent manner and, and the, the ways in which the actual debts were paid off has fallen in line with the way that you've predicted, um, then the market is more likely to gravitate towards you and choose to fund your loans in the future. And therefore, you'll get more fees in the future and you'll be able to charge more fees. Um, and the same, same applies vice versa. Um, and, and on the, on the relayer angle, it's, it's a similar sort of dynamic where, uh, essentially if you're, if you are facilitating the investments, uh, people's or rather creditors investments, uh, in really good packages of debt, um, then you're going to get more volume, but the, uh, none of this, as you pointed out, involves having some sort of native protocol token. Um, because to be like totally kind of brash about it, there's just really no need for one. Mm-hmm. Um, because we do have ether and we have a means of, uh, of, uh, of actually compensating, uh, these people with cryptographic tokens already. Yeah. Um, and so the, with respect to why we chose not to, uh, include some sort of protocol token, uh, into the, the mechanisms design, look, I, I, I would like to start by saying that I am actually pretty bullish about token sales, and I do think that they're honestly like kind of a revolutionary development in the way that capital is allocated. Yeah. Um, but my personal opinion um, is that the ecosystem is just very immature right now, mm-hmm. and that we really don't know exactly what sort of uh, tokens make sense and what don't. Yeah. Um, and so, for instance, uh, in something like Dharma, ostensibly we could do a, a medium of exchange token, so to yep. speak. Uh, so the idea would be that like, in order to pay fees to relayers or underwriters, you have to use Dharma coin or what have you. Yep. Um, and you know, I think Vitalik has a great blog post about this, which I think is really interesting. Like, we really don't know how to value these medium of exchange tokens yet. Um, and we really don't know if they make a lot of sense at all. Because at the end of the day, um, you can't really force anybody to hold your token. Um, like if I, if I was required to use like 12 different tokens in order to compete, complete some sort of like on-chain transaction, like the, the future is much more likely to look like something where I basically use something like token abstraction and zero X to, to never even have to actually hold the actual tokens. And I just quickly buy into them before I use a certain contract and then sell them immediately afterwards. Yeah. Um, and what that means is that like, it's, it's just not super lucidly clear right now that these tokens will A, accrue value if the network grows, um, and B, um, whether they're actually adding any sort of value to the network or if they're just pretty much just adding a, a point of friction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that personally, like there's, there's been a little bit of a, uh, a sort of like a people got a bit starry eyed with the ICO phenomenon and everybody has kind of been trying to like wedge tokens into the protocol um, in whichever way is possible um, when in a lot of cases it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, and uh, the there's a great analogy that a friend of mine told me once, which is that if you do an ICO, um, you're kind of in a sense like starting a nation with a constitution mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and a native currency in it. Um, and if it's not totally lucid whether or not like that currency needs to exist or whether the rules of that constitution are logical, um, then 
as your as your nation grows, so to speak, or as more people start to use your protocol, um, it can cause a lot of problems. Um, and the approach that we're taking instead is saying that, like, you know what, maybe we will or maybe we won't have a protocol token in the future. We're not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. But instead of kind of, like, you know, declaring some sort of constitution when we're, like, you know, uh, a few developers in a house who are just thinking about these ideas. Um, Instead, we're going to actually try to build the community first. We're going to try to build the product first. We're going to try to get people to actually use the protocol. And then we're going to see, you know, in a year or in two years, um, whether something like, say, a governance token makes sense or whether something like, who knows, maybe even some sort of medium of exchange token. I don't know. The the point is, is that like all the models that we have to value um, and leverage tokens uh, in order to kind of incentivize uh, good behavior and protocols are super immature right now. And yeah. we're taking a bit more of a cautious approach of building product first and then adding tokens later. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Um, I think it's uh, it's good on you guys that you're not, uh, you could easily do probably a $30 million ICO and you're choosing not to. Um, <laughs> so that seems like a good thing. Um, and yeah, it's, and like you're saying, it's what is your vector of learning? And right now your vector of learning is, you know, at your customers, at your product, you know, iterating towards product market fit. And then, and over time, you can start to, other people are doing the vectors of learning around medium of exchange tokens and governance models with, you know, tokenized governance models. And as Mm -hmm. they, you know, pursue those vectors, you can kind of, you might, you know, loop into them in a year or two or 10 years or whatever. um, But right now it just doesn't make sense. So I agree with that. Let me, let me check one other thing though is, is it, uh, so from a fee perspective, both the relayers and the underwriters can choose their fees. And I assume that then your platform, like how do you guys make money just through fees as well? No, no. So it's actually definitely worth clarifying that. Like we are not making any money right now. This is a, this is an open non-rent seeking protocol. Even if we decided to kind of to come in and say like uh, that of every transaction, we're going to get like X percent, like anybody could go out and fork the protocol and build it in a manner where it was free afterwards. Um, so the short term answer to how we capture value is, is I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, the longer term answer is that we have a lot of interesting ideas about either a ways that we can become kind of value added service providers to the network mm-hmm. um, or B, as I mentioned before, if something like adding a protocol token makes sense at some point in the future, then it's something we're certainly willing to explore. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. I think that the, uh, that's this beautiful world that we live in now. And I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, the work that Liam Horn is doing in Waterloo around these new generalizable state channels, which was, uh, where Vitalik, you know, gave money to them through a donation. And that's like, it's, it's kind of nice in this new world where we can say, Hey, you're just making an awesome new utility for the world. Um, and you hope that over time you're going to have various ways to make money, whether as a service provider or through tokenization or whatever. Um, but no matter what you're, you're committed to being a non rent seeking protocol and, and, and just a utility for, for all the lenders in the world that want to lend and all the debtors that want to um, borrow. Uh, exactly, exactly. So, Look, I think if I could sum that up in one sentence yeah. there, um, it's that like building a utility for the general community to use and then making a leap of faith that at some point in the future um, there is going to be a more lucid way of capturing value from that. Yeah. I don't think is much smaller of a leap of faith uh, or rather much bigger than a, of a leap of faith than saying like, our protocol uses this token and it's going to accrue value if more people start to use the protocol. Like I think those are pretty on pretty equal levels of, of 
of leap of faithness. Yeah, yeah exactly. Nice, <laughs> nice. Unscientific un- 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 term. Yeah. Um, so one thing that we haven't talked about uh, that I'd like to understand a little bit more is how you guys use the OX protocol or the zero X protocol, as I should call it. Um, and you know, thinking about yeah. So I guess start with telling me how you use the zero X uh, protocol. You said you use it with the relayers. Uh, that's correct. So, so essentially, um, the the actual process of issuing one of these debt tokens um, essentially involves like two steps. The, the first step is that um, a debt token kind of gets minted out of thin air, mm-hmm. um, and that debt token has like all sorts of associated parameters with it, which actually determine uh, the way that that debt is going to be repaid uh, and under what conditions. Um, and when it gets minted, it essentially just falls into the debtor's lap, so rather the borrower's lap. So it's a bit of a backwards thing to think of in in the first step, where the person who is borrowing the money um, essentially like gets a token that says whoever owns this token will be owed x per- like whatever whatever the actual repayment terms of the debt are. Um, and then what immediately happens after that um, in the second phase uh, is that. A, a atomic swap occurs where the the debt token itself is swapped for the principal of the loan from the creditor. Um, and that atomic swap um, is something that's extremely well suited for the way that Xerox protocol works, um, where literally like Xerox is this very, very modular, unopinionated system um, where if you give it any sort of like data packet representing a zero rex order like it's just going to fill it irrespective of the mechanics of of whatever is using it um and for us that worked really well because we needed some sort of atomic swapping functionality um and we would have been building this sort of stuff out ourselves otherwise um and essentially like it's uh i imagine that down the line that decision to build on top of zero rex is going to make more sense um, as their protocol evolves, as more people start building on top of it, um, uh, and I'm sure there are ways that I'm not even thinking of right now in which uh, we'll be able to collaborate with other relayers in the space because we're building on top of it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. It's always nice to be part of a network effect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there? So you're saying that yeah, the you're doing an atomic swap between the debtor and the creditor, those two agents. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, sweet. Yeah. yeah, so the underwriters and the relayers essentially do all of the keeping, aka they do the matching between the debtor and the creditor. And then once it happens, it's like, okay, sweet, the debtor and the creditor do a swap where the creditor um, essentially gets the the token that says, I um, paid this person, this, or I rented out, or I, I gave this much debt to this person. And then the debtor uh, actually gets the, the coins, the like money or ETH that they want. Correct. Is that right. Yes. Cool. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess one final, uh, one other question on the OX protocol is, you know, I I just talked with Vignesh from Lendroid, and mm-hmm. um, his protocol is built on Zero uh, X as well. And it sounds like his his is a decentralized margin trading platform. Um, mm-hmm. And it sounds like his um, protocol might be a, an example of something that could be built on your protocol in the future. Does that sound kind of correct? That's that's exactly correct. I mean, we the, the way that we've designed our protocol is to make it as generic as possible. Um, so that ostensibly like anything from a platform for crowdfunding municipal bonds to something along the lines of a decentralized margin lending network could be, could be built on top of 
um, on top of Dharma Protocol. Cool. Um, and so specifically with respect to margin lending, um, that's a bit of a longer conversation as to how that would work on top of Dharma, but it's it's all outlined in our white paper um, if you're interested in the gory details. Cool. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so and, and we'll see over time. I'll be fascinated to see there's kind of this, this balance in the space of should you make something that is directly for closer to like the consumer kind of application side or should you make something that is more abstracted um, mm-hmm. that then other people can build things on top of which then people can build off of in the future to be more consumer facing. So um, I'll right. be interested to see how right. you guys and Lendroid kind of work together uh, going yeah. evolve going forward. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I think I think the the analogy that I like to use is that like um, Vitalik talks about this a lot, and a lot of the sort of overviews that he gives of, of Ethereum's history that um, Ethereum was kind of the answer to this trend where people would build uh, these sorts of bespoke blockchains that had like X Y Z features that were desirable. Like for instance, like there would be a blockchain with with a token crowdfunding mechanism built in or a blockchain where you could create your own assets and so on and so forth. And it was what was really revolutionary about Ethereum is that they built this kind of generalizable um, uh, blockchain that was that had a Turing complete language on top of it that let people build any applications on top of it. Um, and I think that's kind of an, the analogous approach that we want to take where we see debt as being this, in a sense, a platform where you can use it to to like you can use something or not debt rather we see dharma as being kind of a platform where you can build different lending applications on top of it Mm -hmm. um uh and that we've created the tools to make that as easy as possible um and as flexible as possible yep yep exactly exactly so as bitcoin was to ethereum uh lendroid is to dharma Well, uh, yeah, not, no, not exactly. I don't, yeah. I don't want to pick fights. I've, I've, no. I've actually, I've read, I've read Lendrin's white paper, and I think it's great. So, no, I, I, and that wasn't even a fight to pick. That was just, yeah, <laughs> different levels of the abstraction tree. Which yeah, sure, sure. Term. Um, so, I guess the final question here is, um, yeah, so you guys went through Y Combinator this last batch over the summer. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about what? That was like to, to go through Y Combinator, especially as a blockchain crypto company, and whether there's any, I mean, something, some things that are interesting about the space are like, in some ways, blockchain and crypto are all about like the decentralization of like where you can be a startup and maybe it shouldn't, doesn't all need to be in Silicon Valley. And so I guess talk a little bit more about what it was like for your experience going through YC. Sure. Um, so first of all, like, I think there's a little bit of um, not a disdain for, for, for things like YC, but a little bit of kind of like a contempt for just like the traditional routes by which startups have been funded yep. uh, in Silicon Valley yep. um, in the crypto community. Um, and I think it's a little bit misplaced. I mean, especially with something like Y Combinator, like you can look at uh, the crypto bets that Y Combinator has made in the past have for the most part panned out to be pretty big players in the space. So for mm-hmm. instance, obviously the biggest example is Coinbase. Yep. Uh, um, from there, you know, Protocol Labs came out of Y Combinator, Blockstack came out of Y Combinator, et cetera. Um, Shift Payments, there's, there's a whole list of them. Um, and uh, Dharma Protocol. Yeah, Dharma Protocol. Yeah, yeah, no. it's, it is way too early to start saying things like that as if it's an obvious success. But, uh, um, but the, I guess the point that I'm trying to say is that it's like, first of all, it's not, uh, it's not like there's a little bit of a perception, uh, I think, whether spoken or, or not, uh, in the crypto community that like Y Combinator and all of these sort of like vanguard venture capitalists are like this these sort of ossified institutions that don't understand crypto. And I, and I don't think that's entirely true. 
Um, now, another thing that I think is was really beneficial to me, like about going to, through through YC, is that um, in in the crypto community, um, there's like a huge lack of, of focus on user experience and the actual uh, product that you're building and, mm-hmm. and people who will be using it and whether or not it's useful to them. Like the, the modus operandi of the, the industry so far has been like, we have this really interesting technology and then people come along with all these projects saying, look at what I can use this technology for in this market or that market or what have you. Um, and very little, little examination of whether or not like that's actually solving a problem for a user. Um, of any sort. Uh, and so what I think is great about Y Combinator is that they have this almost religious sense of focus on um, on users and building products that, that people want, building yeah. things that people want. Um, and so I came into YC with this like um, very much falling into the, the, the bucket of somebody who had uh, some sort of interesting idea for something that blockchain tech could be used for. Namely, at the time, I said, you know, I was trying to build a decentralized peer-to-peer lending system, like a decentralized lending club. And what was great about YC is that they really kind of forced me to actually really dig down as deep as possible into figuring out, like, what is the problem that is being solved there? Who is that p- person that is having a problem solved by that? Um, and to actually build products and prototypes and get them in users' hands as soon as possible um, and try to learn from them whether or not uh, what I was building made sense. And that, that's kind of exactly what I did. So I basically ended up um, deploying the network as it stood then to testnet, um, building a bunch of developer tools, building um, a bunch of user prototypes. We, we did a partnership with MetaMask where you could kind of borrow uh, some testnet ETH via, via their Chrome extension, all sorts of little, little kind of one-off experiments. Um, and just learning and just kind of seeing how people used it and seeing what things made sense and what didn't make sense. Um, and I personally, in hindsight, I, I look at that as, as a positive experience because I kind of got to come out of Y Combinator um, and basically take a look at the protocol from kind of first principles and say like, okay, if I were to redesign this from scratch, like what would I do differently? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the what has led us to build this sort of um, generalized uh, debt infrastructure. Um, and so I think that it's like, what's great about something like Y Combinator and these and these kind of tried and true methods of building companies is that um, it is a perspective that is very massively missing in the cryptocurrency community. Um, and that is right now, like the cryptocurrency community is very much enabled to have this sort of perspective because of the token sale phenomenon, because people can just go out and raise tons of money with, you know, just, just an idea, functionally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think at the end of the day, like the, like, there's a reason why the YCs of the world, like stick to these sorts of philosophies. Um, and I think those lessons haven't necessarily been learned in the crypto community entirely yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that their perspective is extremely useful for that sort of, uh, that sort of approach. Boom. Yeah. Build something that people want, make something that people love, concentrate on your customers. Um, that's correct. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's great. So thank you so much for your time today, Nadav, for diving into your protocol and how it all works. Um, and excited to hear, uh, what you guys are doing going forward. Awesome. Thank you so much, Reese. And uh, to any of the listeners out there that are interested in learning more, I'd encourage you to uh, check out the Dharma white paper. And uh, more importantly, come hang out in our chat channel. Um, Feel free to ask me any questions or, you know, 
criticize me or what have you. <laughs> I'm Send happy to hear emojis, your feedback. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, Thank exactly. you so much, Nadav. Um, and if anybody else, and for those of you who are listening, you can support me on patreon.com slash Rieslandmark. That's slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Great. Thanks so much, everybody, and goodbye.